Good morning, Anthem. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the teaching and equipping pastor here. And, and as we get started, before we jump into the sermon, uh, I want to take a minute to uh, just, I, I guess, pause and give us a moment uh, to respond to something that unfortunately has occurred in our, our broader community as a church. Um, many of you are aware we sent out an email Thursday night, um, whether you're aware from that email or just from the national news, uh, that our, what, what would be our, essentially our grandparent church, uh, Cornerstone Church, on Thursday night as they were beginning their summer salt, uh, which is their uh, university, their campus ministry that they do even during the summers on Thursday nights. Right before that was beginning, uh, someone pulled up in a car and um, shot dead two of their students and then turned the gun on themselves. Uh, and then, so this obviously came as Shock Cornerstone Church is, uh, our, like I said, our grandparent church. Cornerstone planted Candeo, which planted Anthem. Uh, but beyond that, just having a similar DNA, having a similar passion for college students. Uh, many of you have actually at some point attended Cornerstone, or some of you even moved uh, from Cornerstone to Candeo to here. Many of you have friends and family who are at Cornerstone. Cornerstone is a church. Our, our love for Cornerstone runs very, very deep. I, I can't tell you how much of an encouragement our leadership is regularly to our leadership here, to their members, to our members. And so this is something that when it hits, we mourn with them. And it hits just, there aren't words to describe it. And, and so before jumping in today, I, I just thought it'd be, I know, just guys, I'm kind of in a place where I'm like, I got to with you take a moment to just go before the Lord. And, and I don't, I, I think in times like this, we're, we're perplexed, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed because why, Lord, does this happen? Yet at the same time, we know why this happens. This happens because of sin and brokenness in the world, but we're not crushed because we know ultimately there is a hope that we cling to. There's a hope, as I talked to Mark Vance, who's the pastor there, that these, both of these girls clung to in Jesus. And so in the midst of it, we take all of this and we just bring it before the Lord. And the thing that we do in times like this is we don't turn from the Lord and just wander in our anguish, but we go to the Lord and we bring it before him. And, and, and this morning, it's an opportunity for us to do that in one another's presence. So what I want to do is just take, I don't know, 20 seconds just to silently go before the Lord and just present before him, just pray for the families, pray for those affected, just to cry out to God, to pray for Cornerstone as a church and pour our hearts out to him. And then I'll pray for us. And then with that, I'll kind of pray and transition into the sermon. But let's take a few moments now as a body, just to bring our hearts and lay them before the Lord. Lord, you tell us in Psalm 46, you are our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Lord, you, we know, are our strength and our refuge. Lord, would you right now in this moment Right, this very moment, would you be a strength and a refuge? 
Cornerstone Church, to those, the family members, those who are affected by this, Lord, would you draw near? Lord, we know that you tell us in your word that you are a God who in the midst of the brokenness of this world, you reveal that to us, you make that known to us, you tell us, yes, this is the plight of the world you're in. But Lord, you also tell us that I'm a God of redemption, I'm a God of restoration, I'm a God who gives life, I'm a God who brings healing. And Lord, you not only enter into this broken world in order to forgive us of our sin, but also in the midst of forgiving us of our sin, Lord, you send Jesus who says, I am the presence of God among you. And so not only were you united with Christ, not only were we freed from our sin, but also then he says, I will give you my presence in Jesus, you promise us your comforter, the Spirit. And so in these moments where we are perplexed, Spirit, would you draw near and comfort so we would not be crushed because we have one who is crushed on our behalf who took the full weight of evil and suffering so it wouldn't land on us. But Spirit, would you draw near and comfort to show us that we are not abandoned Lord, this is something beyond what we can do. Words cannot do it. Human affection cannot do it. You do it, Spirit. And so, Lord, would you do it? Lord, would you do the work that only you can do? Would you draw near? And, Spirit, would you also, in the midst of this, Lord, would you just give us wisdom for our day, what it looks like to navigate these times in a way that is faithful to you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we... You know, in the midst of all of these things that are happening, I've said to some of you have heard me say just, what is going on? Seems like every day a new shooting, something else happening in the world around us. And we've been talking about this theme, obviously, of just the upheaval in the world around us. And it seems like something has clicked, not in a good way. Something has clicked, something is going on in the world around us, and we've been exploring that as we just finished our series on our values of looking at what anchors us in the midst of a changing world and what myths anchors us in the midst of kind of what feels like sometimes just this storm, this hurricane that's swirling around us, and we're all trying to kind of get our bearings on what's going on, what is truth, what is, what is right and wrong, and, and how do we live in the world? How do we live in the world with one another? How do we live in the world before God? How do we do that as individuals, as society? We've been thinking about all of these things, and, and this this is why we've decided this summer to focus on the book of Proverbs. Because one of the things in the midst of all of this, you know, we're all having conversations about this, going, well, what's happening around? We're all trying to make sense of it. And the thing that keeps coming up again and again is this theme of wisdom. This theme of, of wisdom, because wisdom is, here's, here's a simple uh, definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to rightly apply truth to everyday life circumstances. It's the ability to, to apply truth, that there's something that's true, and how do we apply that, though, into the everyday life circumstances of our relationships, of, of business dealings, of, I don't know, mowing our lawn, parenting our children, relating to our spouse, uh, going and getting an education, all the different things in life. How do we apply truth to these very things throughout life, all the particulars of life? And it seems right now that there's just this general lack of wisdom of how to navigate the world, and everything's kind of up in an upheaval. This is why we're focusing on the book of Proverbs this summer, because the book of Proverbs focuses on how do we find wisdom? 
Well, Proverbs, some of you are like, I, I, what is Proverbs? Proverbs, if you don't know, it's in the Old Testament. And Proverbs was written by King David's son, Solomon. And so if sometime after he became king, for verse 1 of Proverbs says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So it's sometime after he became king. And, and the question may be, if you know your Bible, you may say, whoa, 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 wait. Before we move on, already just hearing that Solomon wrote this, I, I don't know if I can really listen to Solomon's wisdom. Because if, if you know in the Old Testament, Solomon actually does a lot of very unwise things. In fact, actually, Solomon, because of his uh, lack of wisdom, first thing, be getting a thousand wives, right? If you don't know, that's not wise, right? It's <laughs> like, anyways, most of us have to manage our one marriage, let alone multiply that by a thousand, right? So Solomon, all kinds of things that he did that were unwise, and actually a lot of that wisdom is what accelerates the downfall of the kingdom of Israel. So you may be wondering when we start this, you go, wait, Solomon, why should I listen to what Solomon has to say, right? It's a good question. Well, it's important to see that it's not merely Solomon's wisdom, but Scripture tells us this, the wisdom that Solomon has is something specifically given to him by God. This is what it says in 1 Kings, which, by the way, if you want to read about Solomon's life, just read the first 11 chapters or so of 1 Kings. It says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. So God has given him wisdom. And it says, So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. So there, there are two things that we learn there, two details that are key. First is that Solomon's wisdom is not built on Solomon's truth, right? right? We, we live in a day where we go, okay, what do you do you. You do your own truth, right? We, we have these mantras in our day because we build our lives on our own definition of truth. Solomon is not building his wisdom, how to apply truth based upon his own truth. Solomon's building this wisdom on God's revealed truth. But then that gives the second thing, which is in the second verse of that First Kings passage. God's revealed truth provides a better wisdom than wisdom built on received tradition. Notice that it doesn't say that just all the wisdom of the world, it's all bad and whatnot, but what it's saying is there's a better wisdom, a fuller wisdom that they have here because all these received traditions, they're actually not built on a true truth, a revealed truth, but they're built on truths that different cultures have developed and they've managed how to get by, but that wisdom at some point breaks down because it's not settled into an actual truth that's underneath everything else. Now, as I go into that, Maybe saying, what, why, why is that key? Why is that key? This idea of that there's a truth before there's wisdom, that there's a revealed truth that's been made known before then you can just kind of build traditional wisdom on top of it. Why is that key? It's actually something profound that's going to, we're going to be given a key to this in verse 7. So Proverbs 1, 7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, what is saying there? It's saying something that's profound about the connection between who God is and his nature and reality itself and truth. See, this word Lord, if in your Bible, when you see all caps, Lord, that, that's a translation. What they're indicating there that in the Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh. That's the covenantal name of God. It's, it's a name that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses comes to the burning bush and he says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. I'm the beginning and the end. I was and am and will forever be. Now, why is that key? And why does Solomon say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? Why is that? 
because there's, again, something about the nature of this Lord that's connected to truth and reality. And what is it? It's because all of reality, all thing, all truth, God created all of it. That truth is there because God created it. This is why in Hebrews 11.3 it says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created all things. He spoke all matter, all existence into being. The only thing that existed before the cosmos was created was God himself. And so when God created the world, what he did was he created a world and he spoke a creation into being that was hardwired with his glory, which means there are realities in this universe such as truth and such as ethics that are completely inescapable. Our world is hardwired with truth. Our world is hardwired with ethical realities, just in the same way that our world is hardwired with the laws of physics and gravity and whatnot. It's why God gave the Ten Commandments. He, you know, we often think like God gave the Ten Commandments and it was kind of these arbitrary rules, like eventually there's a nation. God looks down, he's like, man, they're really a mess. And Jesus is like, maybe you should give him some rules. And he's like, yeah, I should have given him some rules. And so he comes up with the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, dishes on stone, gives it to him. He's like, just follow these ten rules. It's like a kindergarten class, right? Like, what are the ten rules, guys? Follow the rules. And it's just kind of this thing that God adds on later on because things aren't going well. No, actually what God is doing there is God is revealing to them what's already hardwired into creation. He's just being specific about it. And so that's why if, and if you murder, you will psychologically break down. If you steal, society will break down economically, relationally. There are certain realities hardwired into the universe. In other words, the Christian worldview is not only right, it's inescapable. So wisdom, Solomon is saying, so here's where they tie it all together is living in accordance with the truth of reality and not living against the grain of reality. Going, if you live and go against the grain of reality, your life will be filled with relational. Think of it this way. If you go against the grain of reality, if you go against the way that God created the world, the truth that he's hardwired into the world, the ethical realities God's hardwired into the world, if you live against the grain of that, you're going to get psychological, physical, spiritual, emotional splinters all throughout your life. And so Solomon says, this is why he says, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Fear living outside his design. Fear his revealed truth. Fear his goodness. Fear losing these things. Fear not having these things. Fear living outside of it so that you're constantly living in this thing that just keeps making things worse and worse. And it's like a snowball in your life. Fear of living a life filled with unnecessary pain and consequences. Fear of missing out on life with God. See, verse 7, this is key as we jump into the book and get further into it. Verse 7 is kind of an interpretive key to the entire book of Proverbs. Before Solomon's going to go on and start saying, here's how in this situation, in this situation, in this situation, there are a few other authors who add in some Proverbs throughout. But before they go into that, what he says is this, you have to understand this. You have to understand this. 
that if your heart, if your soul does not fear the Lord, if your desires are not in the right place, if they're bent in, if you can add all the knowledge in the world, it doesn't even matter if it's fake news, right news, wrong news, doesn't matter. Actually, even if you get the most perfect news in the world, the most perfect info, you'll make a train wreck of it. You must have a soul like this. This is why Bruce Waukee, yeah, there's an excellent commentary on the book of Proverbs. I would highly recommend it. If you wanted to read two volumes that are about this thick, have at it. Uh, but he says this. He says, what the alphabet is to reading, notes to reading music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. If you want to truly understand what it's saying and how to live in accordance with the truth that's here, fear of the Lord is necessary. So then quickly, verses 2 through 6, we can understand those verses then at that point. Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. If you fear the Lord, you'll recognize truth and what to do with it. Then it says to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity. If you fear the Lord, you'll know how to navigate life. And notice it says here, you'll know how to navigate life and apply truth both practically, instruction and wise dealing. If you've ever done business dealings or you've got to go and you're buying a house, all of us have to at some point do dealings. Some of us just have to do more of them. But what it's saying is you're going to have wisdom in how to navigate that and how to do it. So practical things in life. But then also it says if you fear the Lord, then notice the next line, in righteousness, justice, and equity, that also you're going to know how to do it ethically. You're going to know how to do it with righteousness. See, and I think one of the things here is Proverbs is not going to pretend to address every single situation in life. The Bible doesn't address every single situation in life. I can't address every situation in life. You can't, ahead of time, think and anticipate every single decision in life. But what it's saying here is if you fear the Lord, what will happen is when you enter into moments that you could not have foreseen, which right now, a lot of us, the chaos and overwhelmed people feel right now, is that's a lot of the world we live in. Tomorrow seems so different than what it does from yesterday, oftentimes. And so as we head into that world, what the Lord says, let me get a hold of your soul so you fear me rightly and know me. And then as you navigate life with the truth I give you, you'll be able to do so. And then verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. What's interesting there is that word simple. It's going to come up again and again in Proverbs, and it essentially means the word gullible. It means we're easy to manipulate. It means we, we often have a disposition like children where we'll just kind of believe anything. And so what it's saying is if you fear the Lord, then one, you'll admit that you're gullible, but then the Lord will give you discretion when and where to apply, when to speak, when to lean in, when to remove yourself, when to give counsel, when to listen, right? So it's going to give you discretion so you're not just run and driven by your desires, and verse 5 and 6, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and it's saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. This is who's it for? It's saying, let the wise hear, and it's speaking to everyone. See, here's one of the things that's interesting about Proverbs is there's something that's a silence or an absence at the beginning of this letter that actually speaks very loudly that we modern readers wouldn't catch. Almost universally, the genre of wisdom literature in the ancient world would start with an addressee. Not just who wrote it, but who it's to. And when Solomon here, it actually doesn't say who it's to. In fact, what it says here is this is for everyone. What's, what's amazing about this is actually in ancient literatures, Proverbs stands out because in some ways it democratizes wisdom. It says that actually everyone can have this, men and women, children, 
every single generation, all sorts of backgrounds, all cultures around the world, you can have this wisdom. So here's the thing I want to say as we jump into this. Whether you're someone who you go, man, I was raised in a dumpster fire of a home, right? And you're going, I, I just don't feel like I have any wisdom for life. What the Lord is saying is, come to me, I will give you wisdom. But then also, he says, man, I grew up and I was given so much wisdom. God, it was such a blessing, the family that I come from. Then what God says is, let me continue to refine that and give you a foundation in that wisdom. In other words, this is for all of us. For all of us. In fact, James can continue on this in the New Testament when he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We need wisdom because wisdom is the ability to acknowledge who created the world in a specific way. He created us in a specific way to live in that world. And he's revealed truth. And if we take hold of that truth, then we can live lives as he intended us to live those lives. That's wisdom. We're to take hold of it. Now, before, though, we can talk about taking hold of it, we have to explore and consider what keeps us from taking hold of it. Because that's where Solomon's going to go next. And I think it's not what we often think, why we don't take hold of it. So second, what is foolishness and why we embrace it? Uh, proverbs are, these proverbs are stated in what's called parallelism. You may have noticed the, the formatting. So if you have a Bible open, you know kind of lines. We don't as much have it captured up here on the screen, but there's this thing called parallelism. Parallelism. I should have had that word on the screen. So you can spell it. But the, the lines parallel each other. And, and there are two types of primary relationships between the parallel lines that will happen throughout this book. This is going to be helpful to understand. Some are what's called synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism. Don't worry, after this, you're going to remember all this. You can tell friends at work, they're going to think you're brilliant, right? As Hebrew scholars. And so both lines, in synonymous parallelism, both lines are essentially saying the same thing but from different angles. It's kind of like the second line is adding an amen to the first line, right? And this, right? And then there's a second kind of parallelism, which is antithetical parallelism, or the... ...provides something that's different than or opposite of the first. And verse 7 gives us antithetical parallelism. And it's meant to help us see, like, kind of like this, this jarring, like, everything so far has been like, well, if you have wisdom, then you'll have discretion, and you'll have knowledge, and you'll have wisdom, and you'll have these things. And then it comes to, and wisdom comes from fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of knowledge. And then this jarring, fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, what it's saying, and these are going to be two categories used throughout Proverbs. There are either those who are wise or those who live as fools. There are two ways to live, wise or as fools. And foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. A definition kind of paralleling the one I gave you for wisdom, foolishness is the avoidance of or unwillingness to rightly apply truth to everyday life circumstances. Foolishness is the avoidance of or unwillingness to rightly apply truth to everyday life Circumstance. Now, here's the question. Why do we act the fool? <laughs> Why do we play the fool? Why do we live often like fools? 
right? We, we, we know this from everyday life that we tend to live like fools. We know we should get our work done. That would be the wise choice, but we slack off. We know we should take our car in for the oil change. We're like, I want to sleep in, right? We, we know we shouldn't go to that place, but we do. We shouldn't make that purchase, but before we know, we're hitting the buy now button. Why do we do this? Well, Solomon immediately gives us a scenario in verses 8 through 19 that kind of fleshes out this wisdom, the wise and the fool. Verse 8, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. By the way, what I'm going to do reading here is it's going to reveal what is it that causes us to play the fool, to live like fools so often, the hidden dynamic. Instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Now imagine there, he's saying, son, this is a young boy, and he's saying, you have been given wisdom by your parents. You know all sorts of things that you should do. This is a kid who's been blessed by having a great family. They're intact, right? They, they've, they've been giving him the right kind of knowledge, and they've been telling, kind of steering him and directing him and giving him, resourcing him with all the knowledge he needs to know about various situations. And they've told him about the scenario that's about to come up, what to do, what he should do. But it says he does, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. My son, do not hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie and wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain that takes away the life of its possessors. Now, my guess is when you read that, you, it's easy to go, well, I mean, how do you not be the fool? Well, don't do what this guy did, right? But again, our daily life teaches us that again and again, while it may not be lying in an ambush and robbing someone in a back alley somewhere, we find ourselves knowing certain things. Right? We've, we've read the self-help books. It's okay. Even though you're in church, you can admit it. We read all the right books. We know all the things we should do. We got our calendar all organized. We got our financial ducks all in a row. We can do all these things. And yet, at the same time, why do we find ourselves in that moment going down the path that we know is a foolish path? There's a key in verse 19. It says, he was greedy for unjust gain. Greedy for unjust gain. What is it saying there? It's saying that the boy knew there could be consequences, perhaps even desire gripped him. A desire had a hold of him. Something was able to, even though he knew in his mind there was something that grabbed his heart and had a hold of him and steered him a certain way. For him in that instance, it was a desire, greed, but for more stuff that overcame his knowledge, he again probably knew he shouldn't be there, but greed overcame what he knew. Over and over again, Proverbs will present scenarios like this. We know something, but then a desire trumps what we know. This is why so often, you know, throughout history, this is why 
ancient mythology, universally, there's this common human dynamic, which is why do we do what we don't want to do, right? This, why do we keep doing these things? And we have things in ancient mythology like the sirens, right? They're on the ships and they're sailing somewhere and, and they have to, the pilot has to tie himself to the mast of the ship so that he doesn't get by the siren call to the shore, even though he knows they're trying to shipwreck their entire fleet of ships, even though he knows they're trying to ruin him, even though he knows they're trying to kill him. He just can't help but be seduced and steer right into the rocks until he makes shipwreck. And so the same thing for us, what Proverbs is starting out with is be aware that it's not enough just to consume more knowledge, read more books. Those are all great things. But you have to watch your soul. Because what happens so often is we know we shouldn't have that extra lingering stare or conversation after work but we do. And one thing leads to another. We know we shouldn't spend that money we don't have. We know we shouldn't speak and say words that we know in the moment. We know, oh, it's just, that would, that would hurt them so badly, but yet in the moment it just feels so good to just tear them down. All kinds of examples of this in our lives. We know these things, but the siren call comes and something in us just pulls us. Desire grips us. Proverbs says we embrace foolish behavior because something untrue, a desire that's promising us something, a desire that's lying to us, a desire that's enticing us has gripped us. A desire that whispers lies to our souls just a little. Who would know? Who could, who could it hurt? Is that really true? It's why we say things when we regret what we've done, like, I, I knew better. Something, something just came over me, I, but I knew I shouldn't do this. Right? Usually ignorance is very rarely actually the cause. Proverbs will have much to say about what we do with those desires. But the result always in all the passages is like the second part of verse 19, that it takes our life. It takes our life. See, the reason in Scripture that God, God calls things sin, just in case anyone here is like, why are we talking about sin and all these things? The reason why the God of the universe calls things sin and he calls things death and he does these things is not because God is some kind of a cosmic killjoy, but it's because God is against what kills our joy. He wants us to have life. He wants us to know love, true, to have a really healthy relationships, to, to be healthy financially, to be all these things. He wants us to be able to have a civil society and get along well with one another and help one another and walk with one another. God desires us to live with joy, to live with peace. But foolishness takes over. And that foolishness, that being seduced by what kills life, Proverbs says, is actually the default mode of our souls. So knowledge isn't enough. Why some of the most brilliant, and, and, and some of this, if you're like, wait, I don't know if knowledge isn't enough. Here's the thing. You all know that some of the most brilliant people you've ever met are some of the f- most foolish, bumbling people you've ever been around, right? Like we know this is true. You're like, how can that person be so smart, yet keep doing that? Because it's more than knowledge. It's more than knowledge. And that's why, by the way, a recovery in our day, in our cultural moment right now of just received tradition, will not be enough. What we need is a revival 
a renewal of the souls of men and women and children throughout this land, a renewal that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? True wisdom takes both knowledge and a soul that is gripped by the Lord. So that's where we're going last, how to embrace the wisdom we need. If our souls are overcome by desire, then that means no amount of knowledge will be enough. In fact, some of us may feel, guys, I'll be, let me just be candid here for a moment. I, I love to learn. Like my strength finders is like, it's actually competition, which is kind of cool, right? But then it's actually teaching. So I'm really competitive at teaching apparently. I don't even know what that means. But I love to learn. I love to learn and I love to teach. I love to take in new data. I love to take in new facts. I love to understand what's going on. But here's what I found many times in my life is that my mind is running ahead and it's writing checks that my character can't cash. And right now what's often happening is in our day, we're trying to get so much info to understand what's going on. In the meantime, what's happening is our souls are just getting carried away and overwhelmed. And some of us think that we can just pour in more knowledge and it's actually leading to deeper and deeper, deeper anxiety because here's the thing, it's not fixing it. And it can't. So before we can embrace wisdom, we need the Lord to embrace us. To be our desire. To grip us. How? How do we get a desire for God that displaces the desire for other things? Proverbs has another passage that is probably one of the most debated and misunderstood passages in all of Scripture uh, that's been debated the most probably throughout church history. It's found in chapter 8. Chapter 8.22 says this, The Lord possessed me. Now listen to this language. It's going to talk about wisdom, and it's going to personify wisdom. It says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up in the, at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there was no depth. I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water. What is he talking about there? He's talking about when creation is happening. Imagine now you're brought up, I don't know, it's some cloud or asteroid belt, and you're watching all this happen, right? And what you have here is a picture of God creating and, and this, this personification of wisdom, this, this wisdom, this embodiment of it there. And God's creating, and this wisdom is kind of orchestrating all this and delighting in all of it. And it says, before the mountains have been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing and delighting in the children of man. Who's this talking about? Sunday school time. Jesus. I'm going to say Jesus. I always want to say Jesus like Jesus, right? So it's Jesus. He's, and, and Jesus is being personified. That's pretty good, right? I did do the whole sermon in that voice. But the, Jesus is personified as wisdom. Now, why? Why? And this is something throughout church history. The New Testament refers to this and alludes to it. Don't have time to unpack all that and prove it to you. But this is clear that this is referring to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, being there, but he's being personified as wisdom. Why does Proverbs do that? 
Why doesn't just say, this is Jesus, but he's not going to be known until later. There's just a mystery guy here, right? Like, why, why does it personify him as wisdom? Because it's capturing something profound. Wisdom being where the truth of who God is and desire and delight come together in Jesus. See, God, who is truth himself, he created the world and he created it so that it, as Proverbs 19.1 says, we've been over this as a church, you've heard me talk about this, the heavens declare the glory of God because God created a cosmos that just proclaims and rejoices and speaks about God's glory and his holiness. So when we look up at the stars and we look at flowers and we look at these things, they tell us something about our glorious, good, true, and beautiful God. Romans 1, we try to suppress that his divine nature and his divine power are revealed in the world all around us. God at creation is just delighting and creating. And why is he doing it? Because he's painting of a, a picture of himself and the delight he has within himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, the Father's delighting, the Son's delighting, and the Father's delighting in the Son. And they're creating and orchestrating the cosmos with one brushstroke at a time. It's a theater of glory. And then here's why it's important that we would know this, because Jesus always was the blueprint for humanity. Get this. It says that all things were created through him. All things were created by him. Why? Because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Is you can think the lens or the one who, the model for, the blueprint for all of creation, and especially us this is why it says that we're creating the image of God. After God creates this place, then what's he say? Exercise dominion. Cultivate that glory. Join in my delight. All this theater of glory, this theater of delight, this theater of passion and love and beauty. Take those materials and cultivate it further and worship for me. Join in my delight. Put your hands to work. Get to work. Be fueled by delight based upon the truth of who I am. I'm in your presence. And guess what that is? Wisdom wisdom in its fullest expression, applying truth filled with delight and fear of the Lord. And yet humanity fell, enticed by desire to go it alone, to replace God, to construct a world after himself, to redefine what is true and then give ourselves over to lies of simple desires, foolishness. Remember, Satan was more brilliant than any of us, and he has more knowledge. He can make an astrophysicist blush with his knowledge, yet he rejects God. He's the most irrational being that has ever existed and the most foolish because he's driven by the desire of pride, and we follow him in it. So what does God do? God sent his son, his very wisdom, his delight, his beloved, his glorious one into the world to save us, to restore us. The very wisdom of God took on our sin, our foolishness, the lies on the cross. The truth conquered the lie. Life conquered death. Wisdom conquered foolishness and perfect justice and mercy embracing so God might embrace foolish sinners like you and me. And as he says, if you will repent of your foolishness, of believing the lies of evil desires, turn away and turn to give yourself to me, I will not only save you, but I will restore you. I will give you a new heart to give you a life built on truth, not lies, desires that give joy, not death. How? 
God says throughout Scripture, I will make you one with the one who is wisdom himself. I will make you one with the one who is wisdom itself. And just as God delighted at Jesus in creation, he delights in us when he recreates us in Christ. This is why at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus rises from the water, and what does God say? It says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're both, they're all there, and they're proclaiming that delight again. And what's it doing? It's saying that those who are baptized in Jesus, those who go into the waters and die with him and rise with him, now God sings that over you. See, so often the reason why these desires get a hold of us is because they something. They promise to make us enough, promise to make us secure, promise to make us beautiful. They promise to make us righteous. They grip us. For them, they crash us on the rocks. But in Jesus Christ, God has given us exactly what our soul longs for. He's spoken to exactly the thing that we most need. And when that happens, his delight in us drives our lives to ones of wisdom and cultivating glory restoring us to that original intention. So again, before we can get into the details of wisdom and all these various circumstances of life, we have to come to this, to check our souls at this, that we have souls driven by God's delight in himself, a delight that embraces us and enter into it. We find wisdom by finding ourselves in Christ and anchoring our souls in him. So the takeaway this is where we land. Prepare your hearts for the fear of the Lord. This is summertime, guys. We got more time, free time. Take this time to do two things. One, prepare your home, parents especially. You know, we started about uh, a few months ago, we started something new. We're actually after dinner. I would tell you, cultivate this in your home. Do it around the dinner table, things like that. After dinner, we just read through, reading through Genesis. And as we're going through Genesis, we just ask questions of our kids and what our kids do. In fact, actually, they, they, my, my son described it one night after we do it during dessert, which we'd make them go through the Bible study after a while before they get dessert. Because they say, oh, the dessert, and be like, we're done, right? Uh, but after about a week of this, he goes, Daddy, can we do Bible for dessert? Right? And I was like, yes! He now equates the Bible with dessert, right? Like, I'm doing something right, right? And so, <laughs> it's like redemption. Uh, and so... What I would just encourage you to do, make it fun. Like, let, like cultivate wisdom, cultivate truth, God's truth in your home. Cultivate it with your spouse. Cultivate it with your roommates. Find a time. We do it after dinner. That's what works well. But just open up the Bible and don't make it hard. Just open up the Proverbs. Open up to Genesis. Open up to Matthews. God, open up wherever and just read a few verses and go, what do you think about that? Right? And talk about it. And then pray with one another. I would encourage you continue to cultivate the truth of who God is in your lives, and then with that, cultivate it in yourself. Do not let the summer go by. I know, guys, what happens, we have vacations, and we're coming and going. We get away from our schedules. Make sure every day you're anchoring yourself in these truths so that you would be reminded again and again of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And so be in the Word this summer. Yes, my application is talk about the Bible with your family and pray and your roommates, and then be in the word of God yourself and read and marinate and set yourself before God and say, God, help me to see the wisdom. Ask him, give me the wisdom to see all you've done for me in Christ. Every day to do these things and let them anchor you before you let all the deluge of info into your life. 
Because once the grace, love, and mercy of God embraces you in spite of your foolishness, my foolishness, you'll come to the beginning of and find a desire for wisdom and have the ability to rightly apply truth to everyday life circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that in a day and age which we we lack wisdom, we long for wisdom, we don't know where to anchor ourselves in truth. We thank you that first, Lord, you've given us your truth and your word. And so, Lord, anchor us in your word. And then, Lord, as we do that, Lord, would we be intentional with our, our families? Would we be intentional with our spouses? Would we be intentional with one another? Would we be intentional in our own personal lives? And, Lord, would you, would you just... When we see that as packing kindling, Lord, we, we can't provide, we can't ultimately make that desire come. Lord, we can't force it. We can't make it happen in our kids. We can't make it happen in our friends or in our spouses. Lord, we can't make it happen in ourselves. But Lord, we know that the more that we pack it like kindling around our lives, Lord, you let the fire fall when you are ready. And so would we be faithful every day, Lord, to pack our lives with truth and with knowledge of who you are. And Lord, would you do the good work of bringing your fire And Lord, set us aflame, Lord, and set us in knowing a passion for you to know the delight that you have for yourself. And would we have that delight for you, for your glory, so we might live lives of wisdom. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.